grow with generosity. I'm sitting here with Patrick McQueen, good friend, uh, also a business partner. We've done we've done some things together. We did uh, we brought in um, uh, the uh, Go Giver uh, author uh, with Christy. Bob Ellis. Berg, yeah, yeah. Bob Berg, yeah. yeah. That's right. Bob Berg. That was like geez, four five years ago, no. something like that. No. That yeah. was a, that was an awesome event. It was mean, fun. We had like three, four hundred realtors in the house. Um, that book is, I think, a really, really, I, truly, if if someone's looking for a good book to read, especially to do with like business and sales, it kind of paints a story. It's uh, almost the same uh, story as um, uh, Mr. Schmooze or something like that. Um, but you know, about basically the essence of of business and sales is love. And to, to give more than you than you get, right? So give, 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 give. Open yourself to receiving. But it's awesome to have you here. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. I appreciate being here. Yeah, it's a, it's a little uh, sweaty outside, a little toasty, but uh, it feels good in here. Especially so. yesterday, right? Especially yesterday. That was uh, that was rough. So uh, I, I you were telling me before this, uh, just just to kind of share with folks out there listening. I'm sure there's probably like one to five people maybe listening, but uh, you you were forced to wear pants all day long out in the heat. Why why were you forced to wear pants? Yeah, I was uh, I was trying to qualify for a PGA event and a Professional Golfers Association of America event. And uh, professional golfers wear pants, and so they made me wear pants. And so I, I had they to don't care it. that it's 105 outside. <laughs> it was 105 and about 60 percent humidity, and I uh, didn't bring a, a change of shirt, didn't bring a change of socks, uh, and I'm paying for it today. But <laughs> but it was a blast. Are so you still riding off uh, that high? From- I I did. I, I qualified, and so you know I've been pretty pumped up, and I'll probably be pumped up for another week or so. So how many golfers were out there for this? I think there was about 30 of them. And how many year. qualified? I think maybe one. Wow. That might have been just me. And that was you. (laughs) Exactly. That's incredible. So 36 holes for people that don't play golf. Each round of golf takes about four hours. So you were out there probably you started, you're probably out there crack of dawn and didn't leave until four or five in the afternoon, I would expect. Exactly what it was. Exactly what it was. And, and, you know, the the first 18 we played was a little slow too. So it lasted a little bit longer than four hours. Then we kind of picked it up, picked it up and got going. So it was it was fun. And you have to walk, right? Yeah, we, we walked. And I didn't have a caddy. <laughs> so, but some guys had caddies. Some guys had caddies. I didn't know you so could have a caddy. So you're carrying your bag. Carrying my bag. You're not I had a push it. cart, actually. So okay. it wasn't, it wasn't that, that, the carry part wasn't too bad. But. So what's the next steps? You qualify for this PGA event. What's the, what's the next thing? You know, this was sort of a, a bucket list thing for me. So I don't know. Um, it, but this gets me into some more tournaments. This gets me into some other opportunities, maybe some, from, some uh, free swag from Callaway or TaylorMade, Titleist, whatever it is. There you go. Just name dropping here. If you're listening, Tyler, uh, Titleist, TaylorMade, <laughs> Callaway, yeah. uh, our buddy here, Patrick, needs some free gear. Yeah. Well, no. So this was a, a bucket list thing. It was just kind of a grueling type of thing that I wanted to try to see see how well I would do, and I performed just fine. So did you play in college? I did. I played a year at Michigan State. Okay. Uh, my first, my freshman year. And then after that, I realized I probably wasn't good enough to, to keep it going. And it's a grind. It is. It was a grind. And, and uh, there were some kids from all over the world starting to come to, to Michigan State, which is where I went. And so then I realized, all right, maybe I'll pick this up later in life. Is that a competitive college for, for golf? You know, I think any Big Ten school is, is going to be good. It's a, it's a bigger brand. It's a bigger school. Because um, ASU's it, got a pretty good program, Yeah, it's right? no ASU. It's no U of A. It's gotcha. no Southern Cal or anything like that. But it's, it's you know, it's decent. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. I think that that's smart because you see young folk and they, they're pursuing their dream and their passion, which is amazing. Um, you know, they're pursuing golf, but in reality, they're living in their car. They're going from check to check. 
They don't, you know, you're, you're not getting these big fat sponsorships. You're, you know, if you get any kind of sponsor, you're, you're very lucky. So it's like, I would say out of all the sports, golf is probably, you know, it's a 0.0001% can actually make a career out of it. You know, that's interesting you say that. My, I had a high school golf that said, you know, the top 1% of players can consistently break 80. Okay, good. It's the top 1% of that 1% who are the ones who are, who are pros. And even when you're a pro, you know, we hear about the Tiger Woods and, and those guys and, and the, usually the top 100 to 100, 200 players, but there's a lot of other guys that are incredibly good. Right. And so it's very, very competitive, and it's getting more competitive. And I'd heard it's, there's a lot of really good golfers out there that could even be better than the well-named pros, but when they get under pressure, especially when it comes to the short game or their putting, that's where they crack, and they just can never break through because it's all that pressure that just is just so hard to handle. Yeah, I, I can I can only imagine. I felt the pressure in this little qualifier event yesterday. Uh, I was feeling pretty good, but I, I can only imagine. Man, I'm I was thinking to myself, I'm glad I'm not doing this for my career right now yeah. because I'd be in some trouble. Yeah, because if you're like <laughs> if you're like check and your livelihood depends on it, it's a whole different deal. Yes. You know, you, you did it right. You went and got a uh, you went and got some skill sets. You got some training. You became an attorney, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. Built up an amazing uh, business, amazing career. You're one of the top real estate attorneys in the state, in the country. Um, you have a great, great reputation. So I think you did it the right way. And then now you can pursue golf as more of a passion and a hobby than a, a livelihood. So exactly. That's yeah. cool. So uh, Patrick and uh, or Patrick McQueen and Gottlieb. Gottlieb. Uh, yep. yep. Thank exactly. you. Um, you guys have been partners for how many years now? Uh, about six. We've known, we've practiced together for about 10 and we've been partners for about six. Okay. Uh, for some reason, I thought it was, it was longer than that, but yeah, you've been in, you've been practicing longer than that. But I, I've guys, been, yeah, I've been practicing about 20 years. So when we did that event, you guys had just really kind of started your partnership about a year before that's that. That's right. That's okay. exactly right. Um, so your, your, your focus is, uh, real estate law. Uh, is there any specific avenue? Cause real estate law can be very broad. Is there a, spe- a specific avenue that you guys focus on the most? I would actually say no. So okay. anything that sort of touches real estate, uh, whether it's real estate litigation, whether it's real estate transaction matters, whether it's residential real estate, commercial real estate, chances are we've we've done it before, and 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 that's what we do. Um, I started my career in commercial real estate, and I was doing big high end deals with you know other New York based law firm, just huge huge deals, and I cut my teeth there. And then I started saying, oh, I want to try some litigation too. I want to try these these big litigation cases. Um, and I did that. And so I had this skill set where I was doing both transactional and litigation. And so you get this more of a holistic picture of, of what's really going on. Um, and then, and then I did some development work and then I said, you know what, I want to try this on my own. I want to, I want to run a firm and, and train other people under me and, and see how far we can, we can take this. And so that's kind of the, the genesis of things. How many, uh, attorneys do you have? Part of your group. I think we're at about 10 or 11 right now. Okay, awesome. What what do you prefer, the litigation or the, <laughs> the development or the transaction? Gosh, you know, that's a good question. Um, it, it, yeah, it depends. Yeah. It really depends on, on, on the, the legal case. issue on the case. Uh, you know, certainly um, some of the bigger some of the bigger cases and some of the bigger transactions put a little more pressure on you. You, you have to really, really be on your game for those. So that's fun. Uh, so we take a, a broad sort of spectrum of, of cases. And so some of them will be as small as trying to negotiate something with a next door neighbor all the way up to, you know, a casino deal. And I've, I've refin- helped to refinance casinos in, in Vegas, here in Arizona, et cetera. And so they all come with their own unique set of circumstances. They all come with their unique set of clients. They all come with their unique set of financial constraints or financial issues. And so 
Um, I, I can't pinpoint it on one particular area or one particular thing that I like more than, than others. They're all just different. And that's, I think that's the, the variety is kind of what I like. A hundred percent. Yeah. You've got, uh, everything's uh, changing. So, you, you know, one day, you know, like you said, it might be a casino deal. It could be a neighbor, it could be a builder. Um, you know, we're starting to see that now or had seen that in the last couple of years. It's, it's interesting too, cause I was going to ask you. You know, were you practicing during the uh, robo sign? You know, the robo foreclosure days or the the short sale days, which you know there was issues at that time. Yeah, no, I was, and and at the time I wasn't very grateful about about it. But now it, I realized, okay, this is part of a business cycle. This is what happens, and thankfully I have have that experience because you know, if we hit a downturn and uh, or I need to help people out in in that regard or that area, I now know how to do it. So. It wasn't fun going through it because you'd see a lot of people suffering, uh, but ultimately it, it made me better as, as a practitioner. And I can kind of give people a heads up now, hey, you know, this is how you protect yourself. Um, you know, one of the things we're seeing now that I'm probably spending quite a lot of time on um, are builder issues for sure, uh, because I think that the builders were understaffed for a while and now we're starting to see the results of that, you know, some, some workmanship issues. Um, but the other big one is, is, is in the short-term rental arena. Okay. Uh, we had this really, really big decision come out at the end of April. Um, it's called the Callaway decision, Callaway case, K-A-L-W-A-Y, not Callaway is in the Golf, Golf Club manufacturer. Yeah. Uh, so I'm saying Callaway, K-A-L-W-A-Y, and I'm happy to provide a copy of the opinion to anybody who wants. It's very fascinating. It involves an HOA and an attempt to modify their CCNRs. And one of the homeowners said, no, 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 no. You're modifying this in a way that is a big surprise to me. This can't happen. And he turned out to be right. So the Arizona Supreme Court comes down and says, HOAs cannot just go and sort of willy-nilly make these amendments to their CCNRs. And so people in the short-term rental industry said, oh, well, then you can't just make these willy-nilly changes to or to uh, CCNRs to stop me from doing short-term rentals. Oh, so the Callaway case had nothing to do with short-term rentals. Exactly. It just had to do with uh, taking on the HOA that like kind of unilaterally just said, we're going to do this. Um, we don't need any kind of approval. And he challenged that and he won. And so then the short-term, the VRBOs and yep. uh, Airbnbs followed suit. Exactly. So now we have a, a subset of people out there who are saying, number one, you can't restrict me from doing a short-term rental in my HOA anymore because that amendment you passed was invalid. And number two, this is now providing a buying opportunity for people who otherwise didn't want to buy in an HOA because they prohibited short-term rentals. Because a lot of those amendments that were prohibiting short-term rentals are invalid. So you got to go back, kind of dig to the CCNR, see that there was an am amendment put in, and then go back and challenge that, I would assume. Exactly. Or is it because of this case law now... You, you simply take that to the HOA and say, hey, this amendment is null and void, or are you battling those That's as the well? battle. That's okay. the battle. And so the the Callaway decision didn't actually provide much of a roadmap as to how you go about challenging these things. They just said, you look at the amendment, and you look back at that original set of CCNRs and determine whether that original CCNRs addressed this subject such that it you know, could give rise to an amendment down the road. So it's this analysis between the amendment and the old CCNRs, but it doesn't provide any guidance on how you go about challenging it. So, you know, we've written letters. Um, sometimes we represent HOAs that say, no, we, we had plenty of authority for this amendment. Sometimes we re represent homeowners who want who, who don't like those amendments. And so we say, you didn't have the authority to, to do this. And so it's a challenge, but we don't have a clear sort of path. I think it probably starts with some sort of demand letter to the HOA saying, hey, I'm not happy with what you did here. And, and if I have to challenge it, this is the procedure we're going to take under court. The procedure is going to be 
what's called a deck action, DEC, short for declaratory declaratory action. You're asking for declaratory relief. You're asking for a court to declare what happened here was invalid. Invalid, yeah. Just out of curiosity, because we're both involved with SHAP and the RIM, I think their CCNRs, it's uh, 90 days is the minimum rental. Was that was that put in effect when they created the CCNRs? I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I, and a lot of the uh, more well-known, you know, if you look at Aotuki is a great example because it was built around master plan. Uh, Del, Del Webb was, sure. uh, was the developer. So every single, there's a subset of all kinds of different um, homeowners associations, but it's from what I've seen, it's usually like a 30-day. Yeah. Like, they don't want to see anything less than 30 days. That's pretty standard, right? I, I would days. say so. Yeah. 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 So, so some there's some neighborhoods, if you're within an HOA or even a condo association, that just don't address the subject at all. Mm. And I think the reason that is is because it's a fairly new subject. Right. Because, you know, if you think about it, if you have a community that was built in the 70s or 80s, that's kind of really when we started HOAs. That's kind of when we started, you know, significant amounts of CCNRs and that sort of stuff. And so there are communities that have nothing on the record about it. And then, and then they started to evolve and saying, okay, well, we don't want people here on a, a nightly basis. We don't want people here on a weekly basis. It's okay to have 30 days or more kind of a thing. So for those that are uh, out there listening, CCNRs is an acronym for? Conditions, Covenants, and Restrictions. And it's basically the laws for that uh, homeowners association, more exactly. or less. Yeah, it's a, it's a recorded document um, that sort of outlines, like you said, the laws or the rules and, and how the, go- the, the, the HOA governs itself largely. Out of curiosity, how many sets of CCNRs have you read? <laughs> Complete? I, well, <laughs> yeah, it's a loaded question here. <laughs> lots. Uh, lots, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of sets of CCNRs. I've drafted a lot of sets of CCNRs. Um, so, yeah, it, and, and, you and know. They're necessary. They're necessary, but they're they're so boring. I yeah. mean, they're just, it, they're, a lot of them are just very formulaic and it's like, all right. Are they, is, are you, did, did it get to a tipping point where they're starting to overstep basically? They're starting to overstep some of what their rights or uh, restrictions are basically. It's, it's definitely evolved okay. um, for sure. So now we see communities that absolutely prohibit them from the start and, and that's probably okay if that's what the community wants to do. Um, and so we just see all sorts of new rules. And so it's so, so important that if you're buying a property, in an HOA or a condo association that you review those documents. I mean, so we, my, my community where I live um, is in the process of the builders turning over um, the community to the, to the homeowners. Mm-hmm. And it's been a nightmare. And it has to do with reserves and cash and, you know, what we feel are obligations of the builder before they turn that over. Do you see a lot of cases like that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Particularly because we have so many fairly new developments here in, in Arizona. And we're going to con- keep seeing that. Um, it's it's sloppy paperwork, wh- whatever it is throughout, or, or just people not following what they put in writing in the first place. Right. So it can be, HOAs can be extremely frustrating. Well, and the builders, the builders know, because the builders, you know, in essence kind of create these communities that have the HOA, have the CCNRs. They're well privy. They're well uh, read on these. And the homeowners aren't, right? It's right. like, you know, they don't live in that world. So a lot of times it's one of those deals where, like, they look back and it's like, wait a minute, we were, you know, probably had a lot of uh, maybe not necessarily our rights violated, but, you know, um, they missed a lot of things that would have protected the homeowner. Um, It's interesting because I I used to do a lot of uh, time in Bend, Oregon in the summertime, and Bend is a very transient community in terms of, you know, in the summertime, I think their population doubles. It's a beautiful community, a lot to do, very active, um, huge, huge short-term rental community. The, the town, the actual city, has put in uh, restrictions and ordinances. Um, how does that relate with this HOA thing? Is it is it because it's the city and the town, they have a little bit more um, 
grit or um, power, I guess? You know, I'm glad you brought that up um, because we have had a law in the books that Governor Ducey signed here in Arizona in 2016. And what Governor Ducey signed in 2016 was this bill or this legislation that basically said something to the effect of cities, towns, municipalities, you have no real say in governing short-term rentals. You can't restrict them. You can't prohibit them. You can kind of regulate them for health and safety issues, but that's it. And so in response to that, the HOA said, wait a minute, we're not getting help here with, with rowdy people, with, with the party scene kind of thing at, the, at some of the short-term rentals. We're going to create an amendment that sort of protects the community. And so now what we're learning is that reaction perhaps was improper wow. by the HOAs. But we've now, as about a month and a half ago now, beginning of July of 2022, new sl- state legislation just came out. Senate bill, I think it's 1168 off the top of my head, just came out. And it now gives cities, towns, and municipalities a little bit more say in the, ah. in the deal. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so let's say that you have um, a situation where um, the city and town don't do much. The HOA can govern so long as they're governing properly under the CCNRs and the amendment. Um, and then we also look to whether, you know, the city of Tempe, city of Phoenix, city of Scottsdale have anything, have any of their own ordinances. So they kind of play, you know, a kind of cohesive role with each other. Scottsdale and PV are kind of the, the notorious ones for having come out with some ordinances that address short-term rentals. So if the, if the HOA, which is the homeowners, if they vote for this, for their community, um, does that give it more merit on the amendment for the, within the CCNRs? Not necessarily. Okay. So you still have to look at that amendment, and then you have to look at the original set of CCNRs. Now, if it's a unanimous, unanimous vote, 100% of the people... Then, and then you can do it. Gotcha. For sure. But, wow. but, but otherwise, you still, even if, let's say that the vote requirement 60% of the people who, who you know, sign up to vote or who are, who are members of the HOA, say it's 60%. In that situation, you still have to look at the amendment versus the CCNRs to make sure that nobody's sort of got the wool pull over their eyes. Their, their rights were violated or, yeah, yeah taken like, away. So it's, this case has really changed the landscape, particularly in HOAs. Yeah, and there's always a yin to the yang, right? Because I'm sure you have the hospitality industry that's like really fighting against short-term rentals because that makes an impact on their on their business model. Um, and then there's an argument too that's like, no, the more we can bring people into the state, the more revenue, the more tax dollars, you know, uh, the more commerce. Um, you know, there there probably is no simple answer. But I, you know, I, I could probably say, I mean. We could all agree on this that like if you're in a community that has a, a percentage or a vast percentage of short-term rentals and those people are here to like have fun and party as you know as you say it's very distracting and it's very uh, much of a nuisance for those people that live here and have to get up and go to work every day certainly certainly and i think now with some of these newer this new legislation that came out in july the cities and towns have a little bit more say they have a little bit more you can penalize people you can find people you can take there's a there's a potential licensing requirement, and so maybe it'll start to sway that in the, in terms of getting people who, here who are a little bit more responsible. Arizona is still, in my research, by far the friendliest state when it comes to short-term rentals. It seems like that is the case, and I, I feel like that's the case almost with a lot of things in Arizona. We're very very <laughs> middle, very purple, very pro business, right? We're not hardcore right, we're not hardcore left. We're very, uh, I think, more business-centric. Right? I, I think that's been part of the, yeah, particularly the last six or seven years. Uh, I feel like people are coming here for short-term rentals to, to, to buy them uh, because they see the landscape as being 
pretty friendly towards that. So we talked about a little bit, um, you know, that you were involved in the industry as an attorney when the crash happened. I was too. Um, I, I started in mortgage in early, you know, 2000. So I was there for the birth of the subprime market. I actually was briefly in subprime, uh, went brokering, then was involved when the crash happened, literally had uh, loan docs out at title, you know, lender called, I was a broker and they said, Hey, we're not funding this loan. I was like, no, we've already got final approval from underwriting docs are there. And like, no, you don't understand. Like we, there, there's no money. Like uh, FDIC just seized us. Like we we're not funding this loan. So scary, scary times, a lot different. I, the reason why I bring this up is because you know, we're in a fear-based market right now. It's very fear. You, you can sense this kind of, you know, weight to it. And for, for guys like you and I, it's a cycle, right? It's like, and to me, I'm like, yeah, okay. We went from this like hyper and like crack induced low rate, just frenzy, right? We're like, you know, you know, of course what's going to happen. Real estate costs are going to go through the roof because it's all, all has to do with affordability. Now we flip-flopped. Um, I would like to know your opinion of what you think that's going on right now, specifically Arizona. I don't really like to speak to the whole nation because I don't know East Coast or whatever. We're mostly West Coast. But, you know, what, what's your thoughts or what's your, you know, two minutes on uh, Arizona market? Yeah. So um, from a legal perspective, I can tell you that we've received an uptick in calls on, hey, if things go poorly over the next six, nine, 12 months. What are my rights? What are my rights with my respect to my, my, with my landlord? What are my rights with respect to the seller who's selling me this property? What are my rights with respect to my lender? Can I do a short sale if I had to? Can I do a foreclosure if I had to? What, what should I be doing to sort of prepare myself? So we've seen an uptick in those calls. I still, I'm not worried about it. I, I, we don't have a short sale department that we're setting up. We're not fielding these calls on a, on a daily basis, but we're getting people who are sort of saying, well, what can I do now to sort of preemptively protect my rights if I lose my job, if I have to relocate and the value of my house is below my, my mortgage amount? How does the state compare to others in terms of a homeowner with those rights, right? Like, you know, there's some some states that have very stringent laws against a homeowner where it favors the lender. How does Arizona compare? From my research, uh, I think Arizona is a very consumer-friendly state uh, when it comes to mortgages. It puts the onus on the lender to do their due diligence, make sure you have a good qualified buyer, make sure they're putting down whatever is required to put down. And the risk of loss is largely on the lender. Uh, now, if you've got a, a homeowner who's out there spending a bunch of money putting, you know, home equity lines on and, and buying stuff that they don't really need, there's not much protection there. Right. But as to a purchase money loan, yeah, the protections is there. So yeah. it's, De- it's deficiency good. Law, the, the deficiency protection. Yeah. And I don't think we're at a huge deficiency. No. I, I haven't talked to too many people who are, you know, what I've talked to, those, those calls that we've received are sort of these funkier loans where somebody you know, borrows money from the seller and, and it's the seller carry back or, or it's just somebody who really overbought and now has to move and, and say, is saying, well, you know, I'm a little bit underwater. Do I just come up with the additional amount or do I, do I ask my lender for a short sale? Those types of things. So I just don't think we're in a position to, to panic at all. I, I agree 100%. I think that, um, you know, earlier in the year is probably what was the, was the peak of the horizon for as far as value. Maybe a few of those folks maybe just I don't want to say overpay, but paid at the highest price point. Seeing a, a bit of a correction now, we're seeing. And it, for me, because I'm in the business of mortgage lending, right? Mm-hmm. So we help homeowners purchase a home through leveraging debt. Um, it's good for us now, even though rates are higher. Uh, our our clients now have an opportunity to negotiate. They can. They don't have to 
give up every single right Sorry. and you know give up their contingencies and not get any kind of participation from the seller. So it gets a little bit more exciting. Interest rates are a little bit higher. You know, there's this term that the whole industry is using, but it's true. It's, you know, you marry the house, not the rate. The <laughs> rates can be refinanced. And, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I've, I've had clients that's refinanced three, four, five times to always get the best possible terms. Sure. Um, and, you know, we're going to have a lot of folks locked in on real estate because, you know, I, I talk to people all the time. They're like, yeah, we're considering moving, but... We, no, like we're, we have a 2.75 rate or a 3% rate or a three and a quarter rate. You know, if we go buy something now, you know, we're going to be in that five to 6% interest rate. And so we're just going to, we're going to stick it out. So I think for that reason, um, the, the overall demand, uh, the amount of people moving to Arizona, um, the, the demographics that are coming through our system, you know, the Zier, um, the millennial got a late start in life in terms of owning real estate. I just don't see a situation where we're like in 2008. You know, that was, that was, that was, anybody could have predicted that. I mean, I remember loan officers coming to me and being like, what's going to happen? I'm like, we're going to have unbelievable rampant foreclosures because we're like literally giving people a loan that have a pulse. Like <laughs> we've taken away all the components that make that loan perform, which is ability to repay, skin in the game, credit worthiness. And we assume as a country that those loans will perform. And, you know, it, gosh, were we wrong? I mean, that was, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and for that reason, I, I do like a CFPB. I do like a Consumer Finance Protection Bureau that looks out for folks because I don't always believe in complete free markets to let, I mean, no, free markets can very much take advantage and that, that's exactly what happened back then. Yeah. Um, so we always like to tie in, uh, you know, some, some interests, hobbies, work, uh, one of the top real estate attorneys in the state, one of the top of the country. You're a subject market uh, expert when it comes to you do continuing education for realtors. Uh, what would be some message for some realtors that are listening right now? What would be some things that you think would be relevant for them to know in this current market? Well, that's that's a good question. I, I think it is understanding that Calway decision because uh, a lot of realtors get questions about, hey, I, you know, I want to buy where I can do short-term rentals or I want to buy where short-term rentals are prohibited because I don't want to move to a place where that is. So understanding Calway, having your clients review those CCNRs, that, that to me is huge. Uh, and, and frankly, that's always been huge, but now it's even bigger, particularly for the HOA issue. So that's one of the things that I always try to educate people on is review those CCNRs. You get a big title package of documents for a reason you should review those and make sure that you're comfortable ask whatever questions you have um the other thing right now is and this is somewhat cyclical um because last year didn't really happen two years ago it kind of did 2014 was a big year for this but it's actually the monsoons and how rain affects real estate um and so what we're seeing now are problems that sort of get exacerbated by all this rain we're having like flood zone stuff well well i'll get into that but you know Let's say that I bought a house and I didn't really do a great job of doing my due diligence and my inspections because I wanted to buy it so quickly because at the time I had to move fast. I didn't get a roofing inspection. I didn't look to see where, yeah, flood zones were. I didn't, I didn't look to see, um, you know, evidence of structural issues. Well, guess what? These monsoons really, really bring out those issues. You know, floodplains, structural roofs, those issues are coming out now. And so... Uh, yeah, it's it's doing the due diligence ahead of time so that you don't run into something down the road. The other thing is that we have laws here in Arizona um, that basically say, look, if you're diverting the flow of water onto your neighbor's property or you're stopping the flow from coming into your property and it backs up in your neighbor's property, we have a, a statute here in Arizona that prohibits you from doing that. 
and you can be liable for, for quite a lot of money. And so, you know, as a realtor, if you're starting to see these issues, it's a good thing to say, hey, I know that there is a statute on point here. We may want to look at some of this stuff because the rains actually do have an effect on litigation. They have an effect on disclosures. They have an effect on, on real estate here. Wow, that's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, we've had a very, very, very wet summer. It's probably been one of the cooler, more uh, wet summers that we've had in a long time. I'm in Gilbert. And I think Gilbert has a law, I assume they do, because uh, if you have over a certain size square footage of lot, you have to have a water retention mm-hmm. uh, area. And typically they're in the front, which annoys the heck out of me because my whole house is pushed back. This big lot, you know, and I have no backyard because everything is in the front yard. Sure. What's the deal with that compared to like Phoenix or Chandler or, you know, Ahwatukee? Yeah, that's a great question. So each municipality has their own set of rules when it comes to that as well. So Phoenix has one. I don't know the Gilbert, the specifics of the Gilbert one, but they all are very much aware of these major water storms and or the, the storms that produce a lot of water. And particularly if you're coming off a mountain or, or a little bit downgrade or upgrade, you really have to be, be mindful of that. And I've seen certain situations where we've had, you know, had to have hire experts to have drones that sort of go and fly over this water course to see where it's being blocked and to see what should be done. And so it's a pretty fascinating sort of area of the law. It's kind of a subset of, of real estate, but, uh, but it can be a big problem. I've seen se- uh, septic, uh, you know, s- situations, you know, being uprooted. It's it's pretty gnarly. Really, guest houses. So be- much water. Oh, that so it much just- water. Yeah, exactly. It just inundates and floods pe- the insides of people's homes. It wipes out their homes. Wow. Because if I'm if I've got my own water coming onto my property and then I've got yours from one of these major storms, it's a you problem. Can do damage. Big yeah. time. Big time. It's funny because you know we. I was in Ahwatukee for 20 plus years. You're in Ahwatukee and we have all these um, washes, right? Yep. They, you know, and I, I lived out there for 15, 16, 17 years. And it's like, what is the point of these giant <laughs> washes? Yeah. And it was probably like six or seven years ago. And this is when the I-17 was a lake. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that. And all of a sudden it was like every one of those washes was full. And yeah. I was like, thank God. You could go kayaking down and you'd you be going fast because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were some waves. Yeah, right? I think there were some kids out there having some fun. <laughs> exactly. It did look like fun. But yeah. like, I think I saw one kid pulling another kid on his car <laughs> in those washes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just get a boogie board. and you get, No, I'm not <laughs> recommending that. But. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's incredible that those those washes do serve a purpose. And so if you're blocking them, if you're blocking those little weep holes in the bottom of your fence so that your neighbor's uh, water doesn't come onto your property, that's a violation of that statute. So, wow. so that's something to they keep your know. eye out. Yeah, the other thing that we always tell uh, real estate agents is, is, you know, have a decent understanding of your client's rights if there's a breach. So we get these questions now because, you know, we see some people getting a little squirrely on purchase and sale agreements. So if you're representing a seller, if you're the agent representing a seller, you have two options, right? Your seller has two options. Number one, they can keep the earnest money. Or number two, they can waive the earnest money and actually go after more. They can go after damages. So real estate agents should keep that in mind and be able to advise their client. Do you see that? All the time. Really? All the time. So they forego the earnest Mm -hmm. um, and they actually seek additional damages. That's right. Because they've canceled the contract and they were in breach of contract. Exactly. The buyer improperly canceled and the $5,000 isn't enough because the seller is moving, because the seller had additional carry costs, because the sell- whatever it is, the, the, the seller can say, I don't want the earnest money. I'm going to go for damage. Does the buyer have equal? I mean, so like sometimes every once in a while, you'll see a seller decide that they don't want to sell and they just cancel the contract. That's right. And you don't, we, I've never seen it to where the buyer has taken any kind of recourse, but um, I would assume that they have probably the same amount of rights. Exactly. So the buyer's primary rights, if you're representing a buyer, if you're a realtor representing a buyer in a transaction and the seller says, I'm done, I'm not, I'm not selling this, I got cold feet, whatever it is, you can't get cold feet. 
you know, that you're a seller, you signed a contract, and the law says you're, you're kind of stuck. So the Can you force a, a seller to actually sell you that home? And those are fun lawsuits. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those are actually fun because they're very winnable. I mean, you, I, I can't go so far as to saying it's a guaranteed win, but sure. it's a guaranteed win. Uh, so the seller, or the, the, if the seller breaches, buyer has two remedies. Number one, they can seek damages. They can say, look, you I know. I was displaced. I had yeah. to get a short-term rental. Exactly. Or they can seek what's called specific performance. Specific performance is a request to the court that the judge requires the sale. And that's a fun one because, oh, there's no way that'll happen. And it does. And we get these judicial orders that say, if you don't sell it by this date for this amount of money as provided in the contract, I'm either I'm going to sign the deed for you or I'm going to appoint a special commissioner to sign this deed for you. Interesting. And then what I love about that. So we'll win that case usually uh, almost inevitably. And then the agent, the buyer's agent comes to me and says, hey, I was supposed to get a commission on this deal too. And you get the commission. And then we get the commission. So those are fun. That's a little combo kind of deal. And and we make everybody happy along the way, except for the seller. Yeah. And who's paying legal fees. So (laughs) a couple things to note for folks listening. You need any kind of real estate advice, uh, law law advice, call Patrick. He's He's the expert in the local area. Secondly, if you get on a contract to sell your home, make sure you sell your home. Because <laughs> otherwise, it's going to be very expensive, right? It I mean, you're going to pay a lot more. It's interesting because I think buyers have a lot more, um, I guess, outs per se. You know, because you have a you, – typically, you have a loan contingency. You have an appraisal contingency. Mm-hmm. You have a ha- home inspection period. You have all these periods of time that you can uh, legally get out of a contract. Um, and I think, it gives, I think it gives buyers way more opportunities to cancel because – Oh, my loan's turned down. I have this loan contingency, right? Unless you weigh those contingencies. And, and that's what we've been seeing the last couple of years, which has been very frustrating for my side of the industry because we represent the buyers. And it's like, ah, breaks your heart to see these buyers forego their appraisal contingency, forego their loan contingency, all because they're so desperate to get a home. Yep. So now it's flip-flop. We saw it with the builders too. And I want to talk a little bit about the builders because – I work with builders. I love builders, but we've seen some craziness going on with the builders uh, to the tune of, you know, they don't want to get the homeowner. If they got a homeowner under contract um, and eight months down the road, they are having trouble getting their loan approved. The homeowner wants to get approved. The builders were almost more incentivized to cancel uh, and not give them any kind of grace because they could uh, basically profit more by selling that house for more. So I would assume you guys' phone's been ringing nonstop with with those issues so for sure and and what we've seen are situations where builders will just say well this this client is kind of a squeaky wheel they're complaining too much cancel them try to cancel them um so you know we will see this thing that's very not often used but what i call it the squeaky wheel provision and so builders say well you know this person is complaining about the yellow paint or or the the tile cuts or whatever and they're complaining too much, so we're just going to give them their earnest money or their, their deposit back and call it a day and find a new buyer to come in who's going to pay $100,000 more for it. Right. So we've seen that. We've seen some sort of, you know, some maybe some little bit shadier cancellations. You didn't dot all of your I's. You didn't cross all of your really? T's. We're going we're gonna to cancel this one and find the new buyer. You know, and, and what I said when that was going on is, okay, great. The tide will turn. Uh, the buyers will, or the builders will need you again at some point. So try not to get super frustrated. The other thing that realtors were facing was situations where the builders were no longer offering commissions. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Isn't that cutting your own throat? Uh, I mean, I just can't, I can't understand a world where you're going to cut out the number one referral source to you because you can, you don't need them at that moment, but you will. But you will. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, 
Yeah, so we're starting to see that tide turning a bit. And then, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, or maybe, maybe before we started chatting, but some of the builders um, were overbooked. <laughs> we'll put it that way. They were overbooked. And so perhaps... Trade issues, trade supply issue, yeah. issues. Yeah, exactly. And so we've seen some product out there that isn't to the highest quality that the builders probably wanted to provide. And so right. we're seeing a lot of warranty issues, a lot of frustration by homeowners. Hey, I just bought my dream home. Right. And, you know, there's mold in it already or this, the air conditioning unit's leaking. And it's like, yeah, maybe somebody didn't know what they were doing up there. That's right. Um, so it's a fr- it can be a very frustrating situation. Yeah, and, you know, to, you know the builder's defense, I mean, they're managing a lot of su- uh, independent subcontractors, um, you know, and, and you'll have a group that does great. And then the next month or the next year, they've. Their, their their quality goes down. It's a lot poorer. Yeah. Or their their supply, and we've had a huge supply chain issue, so that's drug out time periods, and then you're rushing to get things done, and or you're taking supplies from over here and putting it over there, and it's just kind of been a big old mess. And and then you get into a situation where a, a buyer of a new build has no clue what they're signing or what they've agreed to. They've agreed to provide this deposit and probably not going to get it back right. unless you beg and, 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 and request it. You're not going to get the same remedies that you otherwise would have had in a traditional AAR, Arizona Association of Realtors contract. It's just different. And people just go in there and they just sign it and, and you know, they're in the sales trailer and they're excited and they're just signing documents without ever having read it. And Because you really yeah. almost, I mean, not even the realtors. A lot of the realtors can't even... Um, dissect or uh, translate some of these contracts because it's above their pay grade. You really yeah. almost need an attorney to do a quick review yeah. and and uh, say, you know, here's here's some potential issues that you may run into if this happens. I agree. Um, it's just because it's such a unique, you know, the Arizona Association of Realtors contract was drafted by the Arizona Association of Realtors. It is intended to be this sort of middle of the road, helpful to everybody, kind of very understandable thing. Well, the builder contracts are drafted by the in-house attorneys working for the builders. Right. And so it, it doesn't have to be so one-sided. Right. Or, 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 I'm sorry, it is one-sided. It's not right. split down the middle like right. what it's we're traditionally to protect to. the builders. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And so it's... And I think the yeah. smart builders, uh, they a lot of times you'll see those contracts be favorable to them, but they do give grace. Uh, you know, we do a lot of work with Horton, and it's like if someone really doesn't want to buy, they're going to they're gonna sure. let someone out of it, yep. right? Because um, they do build a lot of homes, and then they're pretty confident they're going to sell that home to somebody else. Yep. So, yeah, no, I, I think the big, the bigger builders, the the better builders, have built that into their contracts because they don't want the bad publicity. They don't want to deal with somebody who is going to be a squeaky wheel. They don't want to deal with people who are just going to be unhappy. They want people to be happy. Right. And so they're starting to. We've started to see a little bit of a trend that's a, that sort of softens some of this language that says, "Look, if you don't qualify." Trying to give us some advance notice kind of a thing or, or whatever it is. Yeah, because we need some time to try to, to offload that. Exactly. Well, that's great. Um, the the pot, you know the podcast is Grow with Generosity. You and I have been involved in a lot of uh, philanthropic uh, charitable uh, causes, whether it's, you know, chamber stuff or, uh, I mean, things with Christy. Um, what, what are you working on right now? So we're working on a scholarship uh, fund um, for, for underprivileged kids. And... Um, you know, I've always found that education has been important. It's been an important part of my uh, my life. My parents were educators, and so education to me is important. And so what we're working on is an additional scholarship um, to provide for, for underprivileged kids and to, to either go to college or pursue sort of their dreams. That's through the firm? 
That's two to the firm, yeah. Cool. Are you doing something like per case, or do you do like a monthly contribution, or how does that work? Uh, so, yeah, so it's we just contribute some of our excess profit um, into into a into a fund, and and uh, twice a year we we provide funds to, to underprivileged kids. You have a committee that reviews the applications and the committee of one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, easy. A, yeah it, it's usually a committee of one or two, so it's it's pretty it's pretty easy. Yeah, that's it's, awesome. Yeah, exactly. I I am a big believer in that too. I think that you know. Uh, it's just, it's rough. It's rough for educators. It's rough. Uh, you know, it's, it's sad. Our country does not put any effort into educating our youth, you know, like they're putting a ton of money in defense and all those things, which are important. But, you know, why, why is it that the average teacher only teaches for three to four years? It's because we don't support them. Yeah. yeah so that's awesome. Yep. Well, this has been, this has been awesome, man. Uh, congratulations on qualifying for the PGA event. <laughs> congratulations on your wildly successful uh, practice and law firm. Uh, I'm glad I know you because if I ever have any questions, anything remotely get in trouble with uh, real estate, I'm calling you. So I appreciate that. That's nice of you to say. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. All right, man.